Part 3 of Chapter 2 of Aviation Instructor's Handbook by the FAA. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scenario-Based Training Research and practical experience have demonstrated the usefulness of practicing in realistic scenarios, ones that resemble the environment in which knowledge and skills are later used. Instructors must devise scenarios that allow students to practice what they have learned. This is challenging because different students need to practice different things at different times, and because different working environments present different practice opportunities. What makes a good scenario? A good scenario has a clear set of objective, is tailored to the needs of the student, capitalizes on the nuances of the local environment. For example, Bill is introducing Beverly to a low-fuel emergency. His objective at this early stage is to simply enable Beverly to recall the sort of actions that are appropriate for a low-fuel emergency. He decides to use the classroom environment as a first practice scenario. He asked Beverly about what sorts of actions she might take if such an event would occur. She has some good ideas, but he asks her to think more about before her next lesson. On her next lesson, he gives her the same exercise. This time, her answers are consistent and insightful. Bill decides that this scenario has served its purpose and moves on. During their next flight, Bill's objective is having Beverly recall and carry out the steps that she was able to cite in the classroom. As they arrive at their home airport, he presents Beverly with a low-fuel scenario. He notes that she remembers much of what she was able to recall in the classroom but amidst the excitement, has forgotten a few things. He uses the same scenario at a different airport on their next flight, and she performs admirably. Later in her training, Bill's next objective is to enable her to recall and perform the emergency steps in concert with other piloting duties. They depart on a cross-country flight from a populated area to a remote area. While en route, Bill presents Beverly with a low-fuel emergency scenario knowing there is only one airport nearby and that it is not easy to spot. She successfully uses her available navigational resources to locate and arrive at the airport. Upon returning home, Bill attempts to generalize her new abilities and put yet a different spin on the same problem. He presents the low-fuel scenario, taking advantage of the fact that there are eight nearby airports. All of the airports are in plain view and she must choose one. Each of these scenarios taught Beverly something she needed to learn next and made good use of the surroundings and available circumstances. As these examples illustrate, there is no list of canned scenarios that can be used for all students. Instructors must learn to devise their own scenarios by considering what each student needs to practice and exploiting features of the local environment that allow them to do it. The Learning Route to Expertise what does it take to successfully orchestrate all the knowledge and skills the student has learned into what instructors, evaluators, and other pilots and mechanics would regard as true expertise? All evidence seems to point once again to the idea of practice. Just as the perfection of an individual skill seems to rely on repeated practice, so does the combination of knowledge and skills that make up our abilities to do the real-world job of pilot or mechanic. How much practice does it take to become a true expert? In a study of expert performers in fields ranging from science to music to chess, one psychologist found that no performer had reached true expertise without having invested at least 10 years of practice in his or her field. Experts have been found to use two tools to help them gain expertise in their field, cognitive strategies and problem-solving tactics. Cognitive Strategies the idea of cognitive strategies emerged over 50 years ago in the context of human information processing theory. Cognitive strategies refer to the knowledge of procedures or knowledge about how to do something in contrast with the knowledge of facts. They use the mind to solve a problem or complete a task and provide a structure for learning that actively promotes the comprehension and retention of knowledge. A cognitive strategy helps the learner develop internal procedures that enable him or her to perform higher-level operations. As students acquire experience, 
they develop their own strategies for dealing with problems that arise frequently. For example, a student develops the following strategy for avoiding inadvertent flight into instrument meteorological conditions, IMC, at night. He or she checks the weather prior to departure, obtains updates on the weather every hour, and plans to divert to an alternate destination at first suspicion of unexpected weather ahead. One approach to helping students develop cognitive strategies is to study and identify the strategies that experts use and then teach these strategies to the students. Expert strategies were identified by researchers who presented experts with problems to solve and asked them to think aloud as they attempted to solve the problems. These cognitive strategies can be taught to students, usually with successful results. Problem-solving tactics. Problem-solving tactics are specific actions intended to get a particular result, and this type of knowledge represents the most targeted knowledge in the expert's arsenal. For example, a student notices how easy it is to make a mistake with a takeoff distance chart after using it several times. She notices her finger drifts upward or downward when sliding it across a row of numbers on the chart, sometimes landing on the wrong number. The student formulates several tactics to ensure she obtains the correct figures. 1. Work slowly and deliberately. 2. Use a ruler. And 3. Double-check the work. But even the experts had to practice. In a study of violinists at a music academy in Berlin, researchers compared the best students to those who were regarded as merely very good. Using estimates of how many total hours each student had spent practicing during his or her lifetime, the researchers found that the best violinists had spent an average of 7,000 hours practicing, while the very good violinists had logged about 5,000 hours. The scientific study of expertise reiterates the adage, practice makes perfect. Awareness of existence of unknowns. An important aspect of an expert's knowledge is an awareness of what he or she does not know. This is not always the case with a student. It's important that an instructor be aware of situations in which students have acquired book knowledge, but not yet acquired the more in-depth understanding that comes from association and experience. For example, after acquiring substantial knowledge of a single-engine training aircraft, Students should understand that a four-seat aircraft by the same manufacturer should be approached with caution and not overconfidence. Summary of Instructor Actions To help students exercise their knowledge and skills in a concerted fashion, the instructor should explain the two types of multitasking and give examples of each type, ensure that individual skills are reasonably well-practiced before asking students to perform several tasks at once, Teach students how to deal with distractions and interruptions and provide them with opportunities to practice. Point out fixation and inattention when it occurs. Devise scenarios that allow students to use their knowledge and skill to solve realistic problems and make decisions. Explain to the student that continued practice with the goal of improving leads to continued improvement. Errors Errors are a natural part of human performance. Beginners, as well as the most highly skilled experts, are vulnerable to error. And this is perhaps the most important thing to understand about error. To believe people can eliminate errors from their performance is to commit the biggest error of all. Instructors and students alike should be prepared for occasional errors by learning about common kinds of errors, how errors can be minimized, how to learn from errors, and how to recover from errors when they are made. Kinds of Error There are two kinds of error, slip and mistake. Slip A slip occurs when a person plans to do one thing, but then inadvertently does something else. Slips are errors of action. Slips can take on a variety of different forms. One of the most common forms of slips is to simply neglect to do something. Other forms of slips occur when people confuse two things that are similar. Accidentally using a manual that is similar to one really needed is an example of this type of slip. Other forms of slips happen when someone is asked to perform a routine procedure in a slightly different way. For example, Beverly has been assigned runway 30 for many days in a row. 
This morning, she approaches to land, and ATC assigns runway 12 instead. As she approaches the traffic pattern, she turns to enter the pattern for runway 30 out of habit. Time pressure is another common source of slips. Studies of people performing a variety of tasks demonstrated a phenomenon called the speed accuracy trade-off. The more hurried one's work becomes, the more slips one is likely to make. Mistake A mistake occurs when a person plans to do the wrong thing and is successful. Mistakes are errors of thought. Mistakes are sometimes the result of gaps or misconceptions in students' understanding. One type of mistake happens when a student formulates an understanding of a phenomenon and then later encounters a situation that shows how this understanding was incorrect or incomplete. For example, overly simplistic understanding of weather frequently leads inexperienced students into situations that are unexpected. Experts are not immune to making mistakes which sometimes arise from the way an expert draws upon knowledge of familiar problems and responds to them using familiar solutions. Figure 2-21 Mistakes can occur when the expert categorizes a particular case incorrectly. For example, an experienced pilot may become accustomed to ignoring nuisance alerts issued by his traffic alerting system when approaching his home airport, as many aircraft on the ground turn on their transponders prior to takeoff. One night, he ignores an alert that was generated not by an aircraft on the ground, but rather by another aircraft that is turned in front of him on final approach. Reducing Error Although it is impossible to eliminate errors entirely, there are ways to reduce them, as described in the following paragraphs. Learning and Practicing The first line of defense against errors is learning and practice. Higher levels of knowledge and skill are associated with lower frequency and magnitude of error. Taking time. Errors can often be reduced by working deliberately at a comfortable pace. Hurrying does not achieve the same results as faster performance that is gained by increasing one's skill through continued practice. Checking for errors. Another way to help avoid errors is to look actively for evidence of them. Many tasks in aviation offer a means of checking work. Students should be encouraged to look for new ways of checking their work. Using reminders. Errors are reduced when visible reminders are present and actively used. Checklists and other published procedures are examples of reminders. Many aircraft instruments, such as altimeters, offer bugs that can be used to remind the pilot about assigned altitudes, air speeds, headings, and courses. Mechanics and pilots alike can use notepads to jot down reminders or information that must otherwise be committed to memory. Developing Routines The use of standardized procedures for routine tasks is widely known to help reduce error. Even when a checklist procedure is unavailable or impractical, students can help reduce the occurrence of error by adopting standardized procedures. Raising Awareness Another line of defense against errors is to raise one's awareness when operating in conditions under which errors are known to happen, e.g. changes in routine, time pressure, or in conditions where defenses against errors have been compromised, e.g. fatigue, lack of recent practice. Error Recovery Given that the occasional error is inevitable, it is a worthwhile exercise to practice recovering from commonly made errors are those that pose serious consequences. All flight students are required to learn and practice a lost procedure to ensure that they can recover from the situation in which they have lost their way. It is useful to devote the same sort of preparation to other common student errors. Learning from error. Error can be a valuable learning resource. Students naturally make errors, which instructors can utilize to help students learn while being careful not to let the student practice doing the wrong thing. When a student makes an error, it is useful to ask the student to consider why the error happened and what could have been done differently to prevent the error from happening again in the future. In some cases, errors are slips that simply reveal the need for more practice. In other cases, errors point to aspects of student methods or habits that might be improved. For example, beginning instrument flight students commonly make errors when managing two communications radios, each with an active and standby frequency. 
When the same students learn to use each radio for a specific purpose, e.g. ATIS, ground, tower frequencies, error rates often drop quickly. Instructors and students should be aware of natural human tendency to resist learning from errors. That is, there is a tendency to explain away errors, dismissing them as one-time events that will likely never happen again. The same phenomenon occurs when observing errors made by others. Reading an accident or incident report, it is easy to spot where a pilot or mechanic made an error and regard the error as something that could never happen to the reader. It is important to note that this type of bias is not necessarily the result of ego or overconfidence. Rather, it is something to which we are all susceptible. Psychologist Baruch Fischoff studied hindsight explanations given by people who were presented with descriptions of situations and their ultimate outcomes. When asked to provide explanations for events that had already occurred and for which the outcome was known, people explained that the outcomes were obvious and predictable. When the same events without the outcomes were presented to a second group, people's prediction of the outcome was no better than chance guessing. The study nicely illustrates the popular adage that hindsight is twenty-twenty. Summary of Instructor Actions To help students learn from errors they make and be prepared for them in the future, an instructor should explain that pilots and mechanics of all levels of skill and experience make occasional errors. Explain that the magnitude and frequency of errors tend to decrease as skill and experience increases. Explain the difference between slips and mistakes and provide examples of each. Explain ways in which students can help minimize errors. Allow the student to practice recovering from common errors. Point out errors when they occur and ask the student to explain why they occurred. Motivation. As defined in Chapter 1, motivation is the reason one acts or behaves in a certain way and lies at the heart of goals. A goal is the object of a person's efforts. Motivation prompts students to engage in hard work and affects a student's success. Being smart or coordinated seldom guarantees success, but motivation routinely propels students to the top. An important part of an aviation instructor's job is to discover what motivates each student and to use this information to encourage him or her to work hard. Motivation is probably the dominant force that governs the student's progress and ability to learn and can be used to advantage by the instructor. Motivation comes in many guises. It may be negative or positive. Negative motivation may engender fear, for example. While negative motivation may be useful in certain circumstances, characteristically, it is not as effective in promoting efficient learning as positive motivation. Figure 2-22 Positive motivation is provided by the promise of achievement or rewards. These rewards may be personal or social. They may involve financial gain, satisfaction of the self-concept, personal gain, or public recognition. Motivation may be tangible or intangible. Students seeking intangible rewards are motivated by the desires for personal comfort and security, group approval, and the achievement of a favorable self-image. The desire for personal comfort and security is a form of motivation which instructors often forget. All students want secure, pleasant conditions and a safe environment. If they recognize what they are learning may promote these objectives, their attention is easier to attract and hold. Insecure and unpleasant training situations inhibit learning. Students also want a tangible return for their efforts. For motivation to be effective on this level, Students must believe that their efforts are suitably rewarded. These rewards must be constantly apparent to the students during instruction, whether they are to be financial, self-esteem, or public recognition. The tangible rewards of aviation are not always obvious during training. Traditional syllabi often contain lessons with objectives that are not immediately obvious to the student. These lessons may pay dividends during later instruction, a fact the student may not appreciate and resulting in less learning than if the student could relate all objectives to an operational need, law of readiness. The instructor should ensure that the student is aware of those applications which are not immediately apparent. To reduce this issue, the instructor should develop appropriate scenarios that contain the elements to be practiced.
Everyone wants to avoid pain and injury. Students normally are eager to learn operations or procedures that help prevent injury or loss of life. This is especially true when the student knows that the ability to make timely decisions or to act correctly in an emergency is based on sound principles. The attractive features of the activity to be learned also can be a strong motivational factor. Students are anxious to learn skills that may be used to their advantage. If they understand that each task is useful in preparing for future activities, they are more willing to pursue it. Another strong motivating factor is group approval. Each person wants the approval of peers and superiors. Interest can be stimulated and maintained by building on this natural desire. Most students enjoy the feeling of belonging to a group and are interested in accomplishment, which gives them prestige among their fellow students. Every person seeks to establish a favorable self-image. In certain circumstances, this self-image may be submerged in feelings of insecurity or despondency. Fortunately, most people engaged in a task believe that success is possible under the right combination of circumstances and good fortune. This belief can be a powerful motivating factor for students. An instructor can effectively foster this motivation by the introduction of perceptions that are solidly based on previously learned factual information easily recognized by the student. Each additional block of learning should help formulate insight, contributing to the ultimate training goals, and promoting student confidence in the overall training program. At the same time, it helps students develop a favorable self-image. As this confirmation progresses and confidence increases, advancement is more rapid and motivation is strengthened. Positive motivation is essential to true learning. Negative motivation in the form of reproofs or threats should be avoided with all but the most overconfident and impulsive students. Slumps in learning are often due to declining motivation. Motivation does not remain at a uniformly high level. It may be affected by outside influences such as physical or mental disturbances or inadequate instruction. The instructor should strive to maintain motivation at the highest possible level. In addition, the instructor should be alert to detect and counter any lapses in motivation. Where does the motivation to learn come from? Motivation to learn can come from many sources. Some students have a fundamental interest in aviation and experience sheer fascination with aircraft or with the experience of flight. Other students may decide that aviation provides an opportunity to develop a wide variety of technical, physical, communication, and problem-solving abilities. Some see aviation as a way to boost their self-image or ego. Other students are motivated by tradition and wish to follow in the footsteps of a relative or close friend. Some students are motivated to pursue aviation training because it offers a promising career. To others, Aviation offers prestige or acceptance within social groups. Some may think that aviation offers fun and excitement or simply a more convenient form of transportation. All of these sources of motivation have one thing in common. They all offer some type of reward in exchange for performing the hard work. Teaching the adult learner was discussed in Chapter 1, but aviation instructors should keep in mind that adult learners who are motivated to seek out a learning experience do so primarily because they have use for the knowledge or skill being sought. Learning is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Based on this, it is important instructors determine why a student enrolled in the course. Based on preference and or class size, an instructor can conduct a brief personal interview with a student or have the student complete a student information form, figure 2-23. Asking questions such as, why are you taking this course, or how do you plan to use the information learned in this course may be all that is necessary. Student Questionnaire A short questionnaire can be helpful in gathering additional student background information. For example, it is helpful to know a student's familiarity with the subject matter. Questions such as, have you ever taken a course in aircraft maintenance, or have you ever flown a small airplane, or have you had any on-the-job training in avionics? Should garner the type of information needed. A short questionnaire also offers an instructor the chance to discover how the student learns best, 
small groups, independent study, etc. Another possible way to gather information about a student is to have him or her write a brief autobiography which includes any experience with the subjects being taught. However an instructor gathers information about the students, the information helps the instructor allow for not only personal learning goals for the course, but also the goals and motivations of the students, their background in aviation training, as well as their learning preferences. An instructor armed with this information can make the learning experience beneficial to all involved. Maintaining Motivation Motivation is generally not something that can be transferred from one person to another. Instructors must become skillful at recognizing problems with motivation and at encouraging students to continue to do their best. Rewarding Success Positive feedback encourages students. Practice positive feedback frequently by praising incremental successes during training, relating daily accomplishments to lesson objectives, commenting favorably on student progress and level ability. For example, as a student progresses through training, remark on the milestones. When a student first performs a task alone, congratulate him or her on having learned it. When that same skill reaches an intermediate level, point out that the student's performance is almost consistent with the requirements of the PTS. When performance is equal to the PTS requirements, comment favorably on the skill acquisition. When student performance exceeds PTS requirements, point out what a benefit this will be when the student must perform under pressure during a practical test or on the job. Presenting new challenges. With each declaration of success, be sure to present students with the next challenge. For example, when a student begins to perform a skill consistently to PTS requirements, challenge him or her to continue to improve it so the skill can be performed under pressure or when distracted. Instructors can also present new challenges by presenting the student with new problems or situations. Drops in Motivation Instructors must be prepared to deal with a number of circumstances in which motivation levels drop. It is natural for motivation to wane somewhat after the initial excitement of the student's first days of training or between major training events such as solo, evaluations, or practical tests. Drops in motivation appear in several different ways. Students may come to lessons unprepared or give the general sense that aviation training is no longer a priority. During these times, it is often helpful to remind students of their own stated goals for seeking aviation training. Learning plateaus are a common source of frustration, discouragement, and decreased student motivation. A first line of defense against this situation is to explain that learning seldom proceeds at a constant pace. No student climbs the ladder of success by exactly one rung per day. Students should be encouraged to continue to work hard and be reassured that results will follow. Summary of Instructor Actions To ensure that students continue to work hard, the instructor should ask new students about their aviation training goals, reward incremental successes in learning, present new challenges, occasionally remind students about their own stated goals for aviation training, Assure students that learning plateaus are normal and that improvement will resume with continued effort. Memory. Memory is the vital link between the student learning slash retaining information and the cognitive process of applying what is learned. It is the ability of people and other organisms to encode, initial perception and registration of information, store, retention of encoded information over time, and retrieve, processes involved in using stored information, information. Figure 2-24. When a person successfully recalls a past experience or skill, information about the experience has been encoded, stored, and retrieved. Although there is no universal agreement of how memory works, a widely accepted model has three components, sensory memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory. Sensory memory. Sensory memory is the part of the memory system that receives initial stimuli from the environment and processes them according to the individual's preconceived concept of what is important. Other factors can influence the reception of information by sensory memory. For example, 
If the input is dramatic and impacts more than one of the five senses, that information is more likely to make an impression. The sensory memory processes stimuli from the environment within seconds, discards what is considered extraneous, and processes what is determined by the individual to be relevant. This is a selective process where the sensory register is set to recognize certain stimuli and immediately transmit them to the short-term memory, STM, for action. The process is called precoding. An example of sensory precoding is recognition of a fire alarm. No matter what is happening at the time, when the sensory register detects a fire alarm, the working memory is immediately made aware of the alarm and preset responses begin to take place. Sensory memory is capable of retaining information for only a very short period of time, and within seconds, the relevant information is passed to the STM. Short-term memory, STM. Short-term memory is the part of the memory system where information is stored for roughly 30 seconds, after which it may rapidly fade or be consolidated into long-term memory, depending on the individual's priorities. Several common steps help retention in STM. These include rehearsal or repetition of the information and sorting or categorizing into systematic chunks. The sorting process is usually called coding or chunking. A key limitation of STM is that it takes 5 to 10 seconds to properly code information, and if the coding process is interrupted, that information is easily lost since it is only stored for 30 seconds. The goal of the STM is to put the information to immediate use. The STM is not only time-limited, it also has limited capacity, usually about 7 bits or chunks of information. A 7-digit telephone number is an example. As indicated, the time limitation may be overcome by rehearsal. This means learning the information by a rote memorization process. Of course, rote memorization is subject to imperfections in both the duration of recall and in its accuracy. The coding process is more useful in a learning situation. In addition, the coding process may involve recoding to adjust the information to individual experiences. This is when actual learning begins to take place. Therefore, recoding may be described as a process of relating incoming information to concepts or knowledge already in memory. Brain research has led to the conclusion that STM resembles the control tower of a major airport and is responsible for scheduling and coordinating all incoming and outgoing flights. STM has three basic operations, iconic memory, acoustic memory, and working memory. Iconic memory is the brief sensory memory of visual images. Acoustic memory is the encoded memory of a brief sound memory or the ability to hold sounds in STM. Of the two, acoustic memory can be held longer than iconic memory. Working memory is an active process to keep information until it is put to use. Think of a phone number repeated until used. It is useful in remembering a spoken sentence or a string of digits. Also called scratch pad memory, working memory is of short duration and has limited capacity. It simultaneously stores and manipulates information. The goal of the working memory is not really to move the information from STM to long-term memory, LTM, but merely put the information to immediate use. STM retention makes information available long enough for it to be rehearsed. For example, if the learner repeats the number to himself, it can be transferred to some sort of longer-term storage. To retain information for extended periods of time, it must be transferred from STM to LTM. This process involves encoding or consolidation of information into LTM, where it can then be retrieved. Long-term memory, LTM. Long-term memory, LTM, is relatively permanent storage of unlimited information, and it is possible for memories in LTM to remain there for a lifetime. What is stored in LTM affects a person's perceptions of the world and affects what information in the environment is noticed. Information that passes from STM to LTM typically has some significance attached to it. For example, 
Imagine how difficult it would be for a pilot to forget the first day he or she soloed. This is a significant day in any pilot's training. So when the information was processed, significance was attached to it, the information was deemed important, and it was transferred into LTM. There must be other reasons information is transferred to LTM, because the average human brain stores numerous insignificant facts. One explanation is repetition. People tend to remember things the more they are rehearsed. Information also ends up in LTM because it is somehow attached to something significant. A man may remember the color of the dress his girlfriend was wearing on the day he proposed marriage to her. The color of the dress plays no important role, but is attached to the memory of proposing marriage. For the stored information to be useful, some special effort must have been expended during the encoding or consolidation of information in STM. The encoding should provide meaning and connections between old and new information. If initial encoding was not properly accomplished, recall is distorted and it may be impossible. The more effective the encoding process, the easier the recall. However, it should be noted that the LTM is a reconstruction, not a pure recall of information or events. It is also subject to limitations, such as time, biases, and in many cases, personal inaccuracies. This is why two people who view the same event often have totally different recollections. Memory also applies to psychomotor skills. For example, with practice, a tennis player may be able to serve a tennis ball at high rate of speed and with accuracy. This may be accomplished with very little thought. For a pilot, the ability to instinctively perform certain maneuvers or tasks that require manual dexterity and precision provides obvious benefits. For example, it allows the pilot more time to concentrate on other essential duties, such as navigation, communications with ATC facilities, and visual scanning for other aircraft. Information in LTM is stored in interrelated networks of schemas, which are the cognitive frameworks that help people organize and interpret information. Schemas guide recognition and understanding of new information by providing expectations about what should occur. Since LTM is organized into schemas, instructors must consciously look for ways to make training relevant and meaningful enough for the learner to transfer new information to LTM. This can be accomplished by activating existing schemas before presenting new information. For example, a brief review of the previous lesson via discussion, video, questions, etc. Remembering what has been learned. The moment people learn something new and add it to their repertoire of knowledge and skill, they are confronted with a second task, the task of remembering it. Remembering is a challenge because of the natural feature of human memory, forgetting. Forgetting is such an apparent part of human memory that it is often the first thing that people think of when they bring up the topic of memory. The following section discusses how remembering and forgetting happens in predictable ways that help keep human memories tuned to the demands of everyday life. Memories help people keep fresh precisely those things needed next and let slip those things that have outlived their usefulness. Understanding the factors that determine what is remembered and what is forgotten help instructor and student get the most from memory. How Usage Affects Memory The ability to retrieve knowledge or skills from memory is primarily related to two things. One, how often that knowledge has been used in the past, and two, how recently the knowledge has been used. These two factors are called frequency and recency of use. Frequency and recency can be present individually or in combination. Frequency and recency. Knowledge that enjoys both frequency and recency is likely to be retrieved easily and quickly. This is knowledge much used in the past that continues to be used in the present. This is the ideal situation for knowledge and skills that need to be used. Frequency only. Knowledge that has been used in the past but has not been used recently is vulnerable to being forgotten. This type of knowledge is likely to be retrieved slowly or not at all. To retrieve this knowledge and skill, some recent rehearsal or practice must be added in order to refresh the memory. 
recency only. Knowledge that has been recently used, but has not been used in the past, is knowledge that has been recently acquired. This type of knowledge is particularly vulnerable to being forgotten since there is little to distinguish it from throwaway knowledge, such as an hourly weather broadcast. To remember this knowledge requires a program of regular rehearsal to build up its frequency. Forgetting. Forgetting, which refers to loss of a memory, typically involves a failure in memory retrieval. The failure may be due to the decay or overwriting of information which has been temporarily stored in STM, but generally, forgetting refers to loss of information from LTM. The information is not lost per se. It is somewhere in the person's LTM, but he or she is not able to retrieve and remember it. Why do people forget? Why don't we remember everything? Do we need to remember everything? Most of the information people are exposed to each day has a short period of usefulness with little need to retain it. For example, why would anyone need to remember the details of an hourly weather broadcast 10 years ago? Thus, forgetting knowledge is not always a bad thing. For example, forgetting old information keeps new information up to date. Many theories on why people forget have been offered to explain the phenomenon. Among them, retrieval failure, fading, interference, and repression or suppression. Retrieval failure. Retrieval failure is simply the inability to retrieve information, that tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon when a person knows the meaning of a word or the answer to a question, but cannot retrieve it. It is also caused by the fact that sometimes people simply do not encode information well, and the information never makes it to LTM, or is lost before it can attach itself to the LTM. This is sometimes referred to as failure to store. Fading. The theory of fading or decay suggests that a person forgets information that has not been used for an extended period of time, that it fades away or decays. It had been suggested that humans are physiologically pre-programmed to eventually erase data that no longer appears pertinent. On the other hand, Experimental studies show that a hypnotized person can describe specific details of an event which normally is beyond recall. Apparently the memory is there, locked in the recesses of the mind. The difficulty is summoning the memory to consciousness or retrieving the link that leads to it. Interference Interference theory suggests that people forget something because a certain experience has overshadowed it or that the learning of similar things has intervened. This theory might explain how the range of experiences after graduation from school causes a person to forget or to lose knowledge. In other words, new events displace many things that had been learned. From experiments, at least two conclusions about interference may be drawn. First, similar material seems to interfere with memory more than dissimilar material. And second, material not well learned suffers most from interference. Repression or Suppression Freudian psychology advances the view that some forgetting is caused by repression or suppression. In repression or suppression, a memory is pushed out of reach because the individual does not want to remember the feelings associated with it. Repression is an unconscious form of forgetting, while suppression is a conscious form. Forgetting information does not mean it is gone forever. Sometimes it is still there, just inaccessible. Retention of learning. Each of the theories of forgetting implies that when a person forgets something, it is not actually lost. Rather, it is simply unavailable for recall. The instructor's problem is how to make certain that the student's learning is readily available for recall. The following suggestions can help. Teach thoroughly and with meaning. Material thoroughly learned is highly resistant to forgetting. This is suggested by experimental studies, and it was also pointed out in the sections on skill learning. Meaningful learning builds patterns of relationships in the learner's consciousness, which is one reason to conduct scenario-based training, SBT. In contrast, rote learning is superficial and is not easily retained. Meaningful learning goes deep because it involves principles and concepts anchored in the student's own experiences. The following discussion emphasizes five principles which are generally accepted as having a direct application to remembering. 
Praise stimulates remembering. Responses that give a pleasurable return tend to be repeated. Absence of praise or recognition tends to discourage, and any form of negativism in the acceptance of a response tends to make its recall less likely. Recall is promoted by association. As discussed earlier, each bit of information or action, which is associated with something to be learned, tends to facilitate its later recall by the student. Unique or disassociated facts tend to be forgotten unless they are of special interest or application. Favorable attitudes aid retention. People learn and remember only what they wish to know. Without motivation, there is little chance for recall. The most effective motivation is based on positive or rewarding objectives. Learning with all senses is most effective. Although people generally receive what is learned through the eyes and ears, other senses also contribute to most perceptions. When several senses respond together, a fuller understanding and a greater chance of recall is achieved. Meaningful repetition aids recall. Each repetition gives the student an opportunity to gain a clearer and more accurate perception of the subject to be learned but mere repetition does not guarantee retention. Practice provides an opportunity for learning, but does not cause it. Further, some research indicates that three or four repetitions provide the maximum effect, after which the rate of learning and probably of retention fall off rapidly. Along with these five principles, there is a considerable amount of additional literature on retention of learning during a typical academic lesson. After the first 10 to 15 minutes, the rate of retention drops significantly until about the last 5 to 10 minutes when students wake up again. Students passively listening to a lecture have roughly a 5% retention rate over a 24-hour period, but students actively engaged in the learning process have a much higher retention. This clearly reiterates the point that active learning is superior to just listening. Mnemonics. A mnemonic uses a pattern of letters, ideas, visual images, or associations to assist in remembering information. It is a memory-enhancing strategy that involves teaching learners to link new information to information they already know. Its chief value lies in helping learners recall information that needs to be recalled in a particular order by encoding difficult-to-remember information in a way that makes it easier to remember. Research shows that providing students with memorization techniques improves their ability to recall information. Mnemonics include, but are not limited to, acronyms, acrostics, rhymes, or chaining. Acronyms form a word from the first letters of other words. For example, AIM is the acronym for Aeronautical Information Manual. An acrostic is a poem, word puzzle, or other composition in which the first letter of each line or word is a cue to the idea the learner wishes to remember. For example, every good boy does fine is used to remember the order of the G-cleft notes in music. An example of a useful aviation acrostic is the memory aid for one of the magnetic compass errors. The letters ANDs indicate Accelerate, north, decelerate, south. Rhymes and melody are another way to remember information. Rhymes such as, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Most children learn the alphabet using a familiar melody, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. A well-known mnemonic rhyme for remembering the days of the month is the familiar 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. Chaining is used for ordered or unordered lists and consists of creating a story in which each word or idea that needs to be remembered cues the next idea. Variations of the encoding process are practically endless. Developing a logical strategy for encoding information is a significant step in the learning process. Transfer of Learning Transfer of learning is broadly defined as the ability to apply knowledge or procedures learned in one context to new contexts. 
learning occurs more quickly and the learner develops a deeper understanding of the task if he or she brings some knowledge or skills from previous learning. A positive transfer of learning occurs when the learner practices under a variety of conditions, underscoring again the value of SBT. A distinction is commonly made between near and far transfer. Near transfer consists of transfer from initial learning that is situated in a given setting to ones that are closely related. Far transfer refers to both the ability to use what was learned in one setting to a different one, as well as the ability to solve novel problems that share a common structure with the knowledge initially acquired. There is a third way to talk about transfer called generativity. In this context, it means learners have the ability on their own to come up with novel solutions. During a learning experience, things learned previously usually aid the student, but sometimes previous learning interferes with the current learning task. Consider the learning of two skills. If the learning of skill A helps to learn skill B, positive transfer occurs. If learning skill A hinders the learning of skill B, negative transfer occurs. For example, the practice of slow flight, skill A, helps Beverly learn short field landings, skill B. However, practice in making a landing approach in an airplane, skill A, may hinder learning to make an approach in a helicopter, skill B. It should be noted that the learning of skill B might affect the retention or proficiency of skill A, either positively or negatively. While these processes may help substantiate the interference theory of forgetting, they are still concerned with the transfer of learning. It is clear that some degree of transfer is involved in all learning. This is true because, except for certain inherent responses, all new learning is based upon previously learned experience. People interpret new things in terms of what they already know. Many aspects of teaching profit by this type of transfer, perhaps explaining why students of apparently equal ability have differing success in certain areas. Negative transfer may hinder the learning of some. Positive transfer may help others. This points to a need to know a student's past experience and what has already been learned. In lesson and syllabus development, instructors can plan for transfer by organizing course materials and individual lesson materials in a meaningful sequence. Each phase should help the student learn what is to follow. The cause of transfer and exactly how it occurs is difficult to determine, but no one disputes the fact that transfer occurs. For the instructor, the significance of transfer lies in the fact that students can be helped to achieve it. The following suggestions are representative of what educational psychologists believe should be done. Plan for transfer as a primary objective, as in all areas of teaching, the chance for success is increased if the instructor deliberately plans to achieve it. Ensure that students understand that what is learned can be applied to other situations. Prepare them to seek other applications. Maintain high-order learning standards. Overlearning may be appropriate. The more thoroughly the students understand the material, the more likely they are to see its relationship to new situations. Avoid unnecessary rote learning since it does not foster transfer. Provide meaningful learning experiences that build student confidence in their ability to transfer learning. This suggests activities that challenge them to exercise their imagination and ingenuity in applying their knowledge and skills. Use instructional material that helps form valid concepts and generalizations. Use materials that make relationships clear. Habit formation. The formation of correct habit patterns from the beginning of any learning process is essential to further learning and for correct performance after the completion of learning. Remember, primacy is one of the fundamental principles of learning. Therefore, it is the instructor's responsibility to insist on correct techniques and procedures from the outset of training to provide proper habit patterns. It is much easier to foster proper habits from the beginning of training than to correct faulty ones later. Due to the high level of knowledge and skill required in aviation for both pilots and maintenance technicians, training has traditionally followed a building block concept. This means new learning and habit patterns are based on a solid foundation of experience and or old learning, 
Everything from intricate cognitive processes to simple motor skills depends on what the student already knows and how that knowledge can be applied in the present. As knowledge and skill increase, there is an expanding base upon which to build for the future. How Understanding Affects Memory The ability to remember is greatly affected by the level of understanding of what has been learned. Many studies have demonstrated a depth of processing effect on memory. The more deeply humans think about what they have learned, the more likely they are able to retrieve that knowledge later. Depth of processing is the natural result of the kinds of learning activities described earlier. Beginning with memorized information and then elaborating upon it, making associations, constructing explanations, all in pursuit of further understanding. The effects of depth of processing on memory are quite powerful and result from even the simplest attempts to elaborate on what has been learned. One study asked participants to memorize sentences such as, The pilot arrived late. Half of the participants simply memorized sentences as they were. The other participants were asked to develop an elaboration for the sentence, such as, because of the bad weather. When put to a test, participants who created elaborations were significantly better able to recall the sentences. When memories for sentences had decayed, it seems that remembered words from the elaborations helped people recall them. Remembering during training Remembering what is learned on a day-to-day -day basis is the first challenge students must meet. As students are presented with new knowledge each day, they must work to maintain that new knowledge plus all the knowledge they learned on previous days. Indeed, remembering during training is a challenge that increases in magnitude each day. The first threat to newly acquired knowledge is a lack of frequent usage in the past. To address this threat, the student must engage in regular practice of what they have learned. Students often put off daily studying in favor of cramming the night before an evaluation. These students should be made aware that shorter and regularly spaced study sessions produce memory results that far exceed those obtained from cramming. A second threat to newly acquired knowledge is a lack of understanding that might serve to assist the student in recalling it. It has been demonstrated that study practices that combine repetition of knowledge, along with efforts to increase one's understanding of the knowledge, lead to best results. The idea of reading with study questions in mind is one that has received much attention by memory researchers. Experiments have found that not only does answering study questions lead to better memory, but so does the very act of creating study questions. In one experiment in which students read a text and were then tested on their comprehension, students who wrote their own study questions and then discarded them unanswered exhibited better recall than students who simply read the text. Remembering after training. Students must leave the training environment with a sound understanding that a certificate is in no sense a guarantee that they will remember anything they have learned. It seems that no one is exempt from the process of forgetting. Continued practice of their knowledge and skill is the only means of retaining what they learned, and practice is important after they become certificated pilots and mechanics as it is during their training. One study of pilots' retention of aeronautical knowledge showed that students' retention of some topics was superior to that of their own instructors. It seems that the students' active use and recent rehearsal of these knowledge topics in preparation for knowledge and practical tests outweighed the effects of more frequent but less recent usage on the part of the instructors. This finding nicely demonstrates that an instructor's knowledge is just as vulnerable to forgetting when it has not been recently practiced. In the same study, the ability of certificated pilots to remember details about regulations was related to the number of months since each pilot's last flight review. This suggests that pilots may take steps to sharpen their knowledge before a flight review and allow it to decay between reviews. Even skills that become automatic during training may not remain automatic after a period of disuse. Sources of Knowledge Aviation students obtain knowledge from a variety of sources while training to be pilots or mechanics. The aviation instructor is the student's primary source of knowledge, but an instructor also recommends other sources of knowledge. These include books, photographs, 
videos, diagrams, and charts, and other instructional materials. These sources are important for the student because they allow information to be archived and easily transferred from one person to another. They also allow the reader to self-pace the acquisition of information and permit the reader to pause, think, formulate, and reformulate his or her understanding. The instructor also encourages the student to gain experience in the real world of aviation. These experiences enhance the student's incidental learning, observation of other pilots or mechanics, thinking about what has been learned, formulation of schemas, and ability to make correlations about what has been learned. Interactive computer-based instruction programs, another excellent source of knowledge, often go hand-in-hand -hand with the flight training syllabus, assuring academics are delivered just in time to complement lessons. Summary of Instructor Actions To help students remember what they have learned, the instructor should discuss the difference between short-term memory and long-term memory, explain the effect of frequent and recent usage of knowledge on remembering and forgetting, explain the effect of depth of understanding on remembering and forgetting, encourage student use of mnemonic devices while studying, explain the benefits of studying at regularly spaced intervals and the disadvantages of cramming. Chapter Summary Learning theory has caused instruction to move from basic skills and pure facts to linking new information with prior knowledge, from relying on a single authority to recognizing multiple sources of knowledge, and from novice-like to expert-like problem-solving. While educational theories facilitate learning, no one learning theory is good for all learning situations and all learners. Instruction in aviation should utilize a combination of learning theories. End of Part 3 of Chapter 2